I don't know if you are aware, but St. Stephen's, with its two endowments, both an unrestricted and restricted one, combined, has the largest endowment of all the Episcopal churches in the Diocese of Connecticut. Yes, you heard me correctly. Those two endowments combined are the largest of any Episcopal church in the whole Diocese of Connecticut. Larger than Christ Church Greenwich, larger than St. Luke's Darien, larger than St. Mark's New Canaan. Now, when you separate the unrestricted and the restricted, then we fall number four on the list. Leading a church with an endowment was a new endeavor for me when I came here. I had been um, working with congregations of similar composition as this one in each of the communities I'd led before, but never had I um, worked with an endowed congregation. And there was much conversation among clergy about whether or not a church should have an endowment. I remember one person who thought an endowment should be eliminated. He felt like it fell then that the, the people then would be more faithful in their giving and more faithful in their faith life. And I remember scratching my head and thinking, really? We have to be motivated negatively to be faithful to God? Is that what gets us off our derriere and gets going? Because we're afraid? Or we um, are, uh, feel insecure? Is that really the motivation we want in our faith life? Fear, insecurity, hardship? Seems to me that when you have an endowment, you have to live in a way faithful, equal to that amount. We're not shooting here for the lowest common denominator in our service to God. We should strive for the highest common denominator. And so if we have $12 million total in endowments, then how do we live as rich toward God in a $12 million way? The gospel lesson for today challenges us in this, and I think that perhaps this is one of the stories that has fortified or infused the conversation about what to do with possessions, with that which we have here on the earth. And again, as I would mentioned before, some people think you should just get rid of it all, and then you can live more faithfully. But what about when you have stuff? Maybe stuff you didn't make yourself. Maybe stuff people gave to you. Now what do you do with it all? Furthermore, Jesus in this gospel is reminding us of all the ways that we can be greedy. It's not just in the possession of things, but we can be greedy for things that are, not, are a little less tangible, like status. We can be greedy for security. We can be greedy for comfort. We can be greedy for likability. We can be greedy toward convenience. We can be greedy about power. There are a whole host of ways that we can want more, 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 more. And it's not just in the ways of money. It's in other ways, too. And Jesus is challenging his listeners in his parable this morning. The point, he says, is to be rich toward God. But what does that look like? One of the things that crossed my mind as I was preparing for today is a little story that I heard on a podcast where the exact opposite was demonstrated from what the parable this morning shares. 
Whereas Jesus is making a, a lesson out of the one who tore down his buildings to build new ones to store all his crops and saying, hold up, you know, that's not the way to go. I had came across a podcast that shows that exact same thing happening that is the way to go. The key point being here in the riches toward God. I'm going to try something here that I've never done before, so thanks for helping me out. I want to share with you a little clip from this podcast. It's about three minutes long. It's from the podcast The Anthropocene Reviewed. Maybe some of you know it. John Green is the author of this one and the announcer of it. He did this story in November 15, 2018, and it's about the potato, um, the potato seeds of, in Leningrad um, at the, in the middle of World War II, the seed potatoes of Leningrad. The story itself is about 15 minutes long, and I'm only going to share with you three minutes of it, but I want to flag for you some of the things he shares prior to the, deep, the part that I'm going to play. He talks about the seed bank in the Soviet Union and how it is that these things were protected so that they could be planted on and on and on and how important it is to have seed banks, in which we have many, several at least, in the world. And this one in what is now St. Petersburg still remains. To set the scene, John Green reminds us of the sufferings of the Soviets in World War II, that eight million soldiers died during that war and 13 million civilians. He puts it in perspective by giving another statistic. He says that in all of the wars in America's history, our brief but present history, in total, 1.4 million Americans have died in war. Contrast that with the 1.6 million that died in a single city in the Soviet Union in World War II. He's telling about the siege of Leningrad in the summer of 1941 and the desire to claim all of the seed banks and to the, that the Nazis wanted to have control over all of the seeds and what it is that the people of Leningrad went through in order to protect the seed banks. He talks about the starvation that ensued upon that city because there was no capacity to move in or out of the city. And indeed, that was one of the strategies of Hitler's regime, was to starve people out of there. He gives statistics such as at one point in that year, on average, an adult had about five ounces of bread a day. And it was not of good quality since on occasion it was half um, um, sawdust. Maybe you know that. Another thing he talks about is how the glue on wallpaper was made often from potato starch, and so people pulled the wallpaper down and scraped the glue off and boiled it to make a soup. It gives you an idea of the starvation that was happening. And so he talks about what it is that the people who oversaw the seed bank went through in order to protect the seed bank. And that's where the story picks up now. Meanwhile, the disciples of Vavilov had thousands of varieties of rice and wheat. They had thousands more edible seed potatoes that Kamaraz and Boskrinskaya had saved. But what you eat now, you cannot plant later. The seed bank workers had to save their specimens first from the Nazis. That commando unit never got to the collection. 
but also from their starving compatriots in Leningrad, who were desperate with hunger. Then there were the rats and mice. People reported that the rodent population was worse than normal that first winter, because people had resorted to eating all the cats. The potatoes were the hardest of all, because they required warmth. If they froze through, they would die. Heat was scarce in winter, but the first fuel went to keep the seed potatoes warm. Working in shifts, the seed bank scientists stayed with their collection 24 hours a day, feeding the fire and protecting the seeds. Years later, one of the workers, Vadim Lechnovich, was asked if it was hard to keep from eating the rice and wheat and potatoes all around him. And he replied, it was hard to walk. It was unbearably hard to get up every morning, to move your hands and feet. But it was not in the least difficult to refrain from eating up the collection. What was involved was the cause of your life, the cause of your comrades' lives. Peanut specialist A.G. Stukin died at his desk in the building on St. Isaac Square, an uneaten package of peanuts in his hand. Dmitry Ivanov, who oversaw the rice collection at the seed bank, died of starvation at his post, surrounded by bags of rice. The keeper of the oat collection, Ilya Rodina, died, as did Grigory Creer, who managed the herb collection, and both Abraham Kamaraz and Olga Voskrinskaya, the potato saviors. Altogether, at least a dozen of the Institute scientists starved to death during the siege. They probably could have survived on that collection of seeds, but instead, the seeds survived. In many cases, they were the only examples of their particular varietal. And we still use those seeds. Decades after World War II, for instance, the descendants of some seeds that survived the war were used to replenish seed stocks following drought in Ethiopia. When blight comes or the climate changes, we turn to seed banks, including the Vavilov Institute of Plant Industry, which is still in St. Isaac's Square all these decades later. Humans are often criticized for being short-term thinkers, unable to see past their own lives. And yes, in desperate situations, we can become desperate animals. But it is also human to die for want of potatoes that you are saving for people you do not know. Every seed contains a possibility of life yet to come. And when given the choice between themselves today or everyone tomorrow, the seed bank workers of Leningrad chose us. Let us remember their example. I decided to play that for you because I knew I couldn't get the names right, and I felt like the names needed to be remembered. It's difficult to grasp the circumstances in which those individuals found themselves and the decisions that they made for the greater good. And I believe that if we were to share that story or dialogue with Jesus about that story, he would say, now there's an example of when you should build the barns. How is it that we are rich toward God and how is it that we spend ourselves in faithful service? This question came up also for um, Martin Niemöller in that exact same era of time. 
You might know him by a poem that is famously attributed to him. When it starts, they came for the communists, but I was not a communist. And it goes on and on through the various groups that the Hitler regime came for, and that in the end, when they came for him, there was no one left. Well, that poem has been a condensation of words that Niemöller said in a speech in 1946, in January of 1946. As part of the Confessing Church in Frankfurt, Germany, um, he was a part of the German Lutheran pastor leadership and a theologian. And this is part of his confession following the horrors of World War II. The people who were put in the camps then were communists. Who cared about them? We knew it. It was printed in the newspapers. Who raised their voice? Maybe the confessing church? We thought communists, those opponents of religion, those enemies of Christians. Quote, should I be my brother's keeper? End quote. Then they got rid of the sick, the so-called incurables. I remember a conversation I had with a person who claimed to be a Christian. He said, perhaps it's right these incurably sick people just cost the state money. They are just a burden to themselves and to others. Isn't it best for all concerned if they are taken out of the middle of society? Only then did the church as such take note. Then we started talking until our voices were again silenced in public. Can we say we aren't guilty or responsible? The persecution of the Jews, the way we treated the occupied countries or the things in Greece, in Poland, in Czechoslovakia, or in Holland that were written in the newspapers. I believe we confessing church Christians have every reason to say mea culpa, mea culpa. We can talk ourselves out of it with the excuse that it would have cost me my head if I had spoken out. We preferred to keep silent. We are certainly not without guilt, fault, and I ask myself again and again, what would have happened if in the year 1933 or 1934, there must have been a possibility, 14,000 Protestant pastors and all Protestant communities in Germany had defended the truth until their deaths? If we had said back then, it is not right when Hermann Goring simply puts 100,000 communists in the concentration camps in order to let them die. I can imagine that perhaps 30,000 to 40,000 Protestant Christians would have had their heads cut off. But I can also imagine that we would have rescued 30 to 40 million, approximately, people. Because that is what it is costing us now. One of the most fundamental aspects of evil is that it robs us of our humanity or all creation of its createdness. Evil objectifies and diminishes on that objectification and attends to the thing on its objectification. And so we see that repeated day in and day out, time and again, decade after decade, the proclivity of evil to objectify the other, thus making sense of the horrible action. But God reminds us of what steadfast love looks like. And even the challenge of demonstrating that steadfast love. The only thing which can combat evil in whatever its new form is. Consider the passage from Hosea, where God, the prophet, is speaking God's love for his children. 
and his intimate love of his children. Such beautiful images of a parent with a child teaching them to walk or holding them to their cheek. You can envision it. You certainly have seen photos of it if you yourself have not been in one. And yet, God says, my people went from me. The more I called them to myself, the more they went away. And so as you hear the prophet speak in the middle of the text for this morning, God says, never mind. I'm going to let happen to you what I've let happen to these other countries. It hurts too much to love you. But then at the end, he opens his heart to what he has created. He says, according to the prophet Hosea, my heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my fierce anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and no mortal, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. He speaks of speaking like a lion and the sound of the voice calling all his created order to him. This is the challenge that we face as his disciples in the 21st century. How is it that we live as his children? It will most certainly cost us. I think that we know that, just as the people decades ago knew it. And so we're challenged to consider what it costs us and what we're willing to spend ourselves on. That's the invitation of both the example we hear in the podcast, but then of our gospel lesson today. What are you willing to spend yourself on? It will cost you to be a follower of Jesus. But how does that following and your spending bring a fuller into the community God's unconditional love for God's creation? This is something we have to consider. And I believe that when we do as a church, people will see that we, St. Stephen's, we might have the largest endowment in all the diocese. But what we want them to see is that we're rich towards God. Amen.